You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So tonight I wanted to talk about bigness in some ways. And when I sat down to work on the talk this afternoon, I called it on becoming a Buddha. So this is very big bigness. <laughs> I also wanted to say that having requested you know, any questions or comments on those eight verses, I got three notes. So my thinking is either you are all completely enlightened, and this is sort of a waste of time, or you are sitting there going, ha, 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 wonder what she's going to do with this one. So in either event, we'll see. So you may know that um, there's a, a body of literature in the Buddhist world called the Jataka Tales, which are about the countless lives of the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, in which that kind of mind stream, that stream of consciousness, gradually becomes more and more refined and more and more awake until, in the end, um, the Buddha arises. And any of you who have made it into the enchanted forest, which I hope you all have, um, saw the little shine in there, which I think of as commemorating my encounter with the mountain lion in there, but um, I'm not sure that's what they intended about how the Bodhisattva gave his body to be eaten by the tigress with her hungry cubs. It actually never occurred to me to lie down and just be eaten when I got growled at, but um, that was one of those previous lifetimes when he offered himself in that way. And it's a wonderful body of literature. I recommend it to you where he, had, he was a parrot and he was an ox and he was a deer and he was all kinds of different kinds of people who had all kinds of adventures. Um, all of them sort of gradually, gradually, gradually waking up. And way before that, all of those stories, as the mythology goes, in another time, sort of like Star Wars, you know, in another time and another galaxy, um, in the time of another Buddha, there was a young man whose name was Sumedho. You, that may ring a few bells for those of you who know our monk friends. And um, the Buddha of his time was coming through his village and um, as he came through, it was kind of wet and muddy, and there was one point at which um, Sumedho lay down and let the Buddha walk over him rather than um, the Buddha having to walk through the puddle. And he was so moved by his encounter with this enlightened being that in that moment he vowed that he would 
come back as many times as necessary and do whatever it took in order to become a Buddha. So, you know, that's a huge, huge aspiration. And then all of these lifetimes, according to the mythology, came and went, and he did all this learning and and finding out of things until he was ready to be a Buddha, or until that stream of consciousness was. So often, as we leave a retreat, certainly when I leave a retreat, there are, uh, there's quite a bit of thinking about goals, like what am I going to do now that I'm leaving? You know, so tomorrow is kind of right there, you know, all of you at some point tomorrow, hopefully after lunch, we'll get into your cars and drive down the road and then, <laughs> and practically the blinking of an eye given how close we are to town, you will be home in your everyday lives. And, and so we think a lot at the end of retreat, how am I going to live now? Will this retreat make a difference is really what we're wanting to know. And will anything have changed? You know, Do I just go back and pick up and it's the same old, same old? And sometimes we have resolutions. You know, often I do. You know, some intention to do things a little bit differently or maybe even a lot differently. And and sometimes it's sitting more, you know, this time I'm really going to sit every day. I am, I am. Or if you've been sitting every day, you're going to sit longer every day. Or maybe you're going to sit twice a day. Or you're going to sit a longer retreat. It's time, you know, to sit. You've been sitting five-day retreats and now it's time for a 10-day retreat. Or maybe you're beginning to think about two weeks or a month or three months or go to the forest refuge for a year or whatever. Or maybe it's the kind of intention about, I'm going to be kinder to myself. You've really listened to what Bob and Richard have had to say about (coughs) compassion for yourself. And so you're going to go home and you are going to slow down and be nicer to yourself and all of those. Or maybe your intention is to be kinder to the people around you. And I'm sure if we polled the room, we could probably come up with a, a few more intentions that um, are also really wonderful intentions that arise in a retreat. And intention, which we've looked at a lot here, you know, we spend a little time every morning looking at our intention, and we've talked about it at the beginning of the retreat. And intention is what flavors our actions. It creates a specific flavor to whatever it is that we do. And and if you think about it, you know, the example that's often given is I can pick up a knife and I can lay Richard down on the floor and I can slice down his middle, you know. And if I'm a surgeon and I want to fix him up a little bit, then my intentions are kind and probably the results will be good. But if I'm a murderer and I slice him down the middle, Um, that's not so good and it has a very different kind of reverberation and it may not be even a very different cut. It's kind of interesting when you start thinking about it actually. So the the karma of an action is really, which and the karma really is the reverberation of it, how it carries out, is flavored by that intention. And intention, it's not about, you know, if We've said this in here too. It's not about having to have. It's not about attachment. It's really about setting a course in a particular direction. 
You know, we're deciding, you might be deciding towards going towards kindness, or you might be creating a direction towards more sitting or longer retreats. And and then, once you've set that direction, then it's a process of always adjusting your course. And many of you have heard me quote the airline pilot who was asked, you know, how is it that you keep the airplanes on course? And he said, we're never on course. We're never on course. We're always adjusting back. It's always, the plane is always going a little this way, a little that way, a little this way, a little that way. And the pilots are always, just like you, I mean, it's really like what we do in a car on the freeway, actually, if you think about it. You don't just go in a straight line. There's constant adjustment in order to get where you want to go. So today, I know that many of you went up and walked the pilgrimage walk with the eight verses. I know that someone was sitting up in the forest and has been for a couple of days and said the traffic up there was rather more considerable today (laughs) than it had been for a while. And I suppose if you add to our group all of the people who came to visit and were wandering through, also looking, um, it's a lot of folks. And um, and it's really quite a wonderful series of verses. And it's a Tibetan text. And the the first verse really kind of sets the tone of the whole thing. It says, determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit from all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. I mean, that's enough to make you turn around and go the other way. Um, It's a little awesome, actually, in in its tone. And you know, as I read it and read it the first time, it's like all beings, all beings at all times. Is this really even possible? And, you know, what about this person? And what about that person? But, you know, if you look over the Buddhist texts, there are many, many formulations of intentions that seem just utterly insane. I mean, what did Sumedho think he was doing? You know, it's, it's quite interesting, because I've thought about this a lot. Would I make a resolve to become a Buddha? You know, isn't that kind of presumptuous? And well, I mean, me? And I don't know who he was or what he was like, um, but he made this enormous intention. And whatever it was that happens with this continuity of something and some of the images it's like lighting one candle from another he vowed that that continuity of the mind stream would someday come back as a Buddha or in many traditions there are vows of the Bodhisattva so not quite a Buddha but that you will come back over and over and over again until all beings are enlightened, you know? And the, the Dalai Lama, at almost everything he teaches, um, has people say this vow, which is one that I say now every day as part of my practice. 
He says, with the wish to free all beings, I shall always go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha until I reach awakening. So, so far so good, right? Filled with wisdom and compassion, today in Buddha's presence, I generate the mind of awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Now here's the... For as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Mm. So that's a long, long time. As Robert Thurman said when I took it the first time, he said, this is worse than getting married. <laughs> he said, this one, this one you, you don't, there's no out, you can't even die and get out of it. You come back over and over and over again. Or in Zen practice, you know, at the beginning of every period of sitting, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all as part of that vow. You know, I mean, they're just insane. They're insane. They are so big. They feel like they're so far beyond the reach of an ordinary householder practitioner. And yet, I'm sure many of you have taken these vows. And many of you say these things as a regular part of your practice. And some of you maybe even have kind of set your goal on being a Buddha in some lifetime or other. I kind of hope so. Imagine, wouldn't it be great if someone in here was the next <laughs> Buddha and we don't know it yet, you know? You're just, we're practicing. So what are we thinking? You know, and so you, and then, you know, you come across a text like this and these eight verses and, and as I said, it's possible and um, certainly I have experienced it in my own being there's a little reaction that says, no way, you know, how can I transform my mind that much? How can I transform my thoughts that much? And I know the first time that I read those verses, I really felt quite challenged by them. And, and yet, at the same time, because I am who I am, and we are where we are, and we're doing what we're doing, also really wanting to reflect on them and to consider them and, um, and to take them in you know, for myself. So I thought, as I walked around yesterday, and when I had just gone up just to take a walk, I thought, well, this would be interesting to really chew on together and see where it takes us. And maybe just to say, you know, these are, these verses are from the Tibetan lineage and the Tibetan world, but there is in Theravadan teachings, particularly in Thailand, there is a strand of teaching that understands the bodhisattva ideal and this notion of coming back over and over again to serve others. And it's also true that as Buddhism has come into the West and it's kind of mixing up a bit, you know, Zen and and Tibetan practitioners and Theravadan practitioners kind of all getting together and we've all been to each other's teachings and it's it's kind of mixing up and who knows exactly where it's going to go. And, and this particular ideal, this very altruistic notion of wanting to be of service to other beings fits, I think, in our Western psyche and our Western way of understanding things. And it really strikes a chord in, in the hearts of many, many people. So in that first verse, 
you know, he talks about deriving the greatest possible benefit from all sentient beings and holding them most dear at all times. In his commentary on the text, the Dalai Lama says something that he often says when he teaches, and he talked about it again recently when he was in San Francisco. And he talks about the complete interconnectedness of all beings, that all beings moment to moment rise because of causes and conditions. The conditions are such that we are all arising here in this moment, but, you know, something could change, some geological catastrophe or some asteroid coming in from outer space and all of a sudden the conditions wouldn't be here for us to be here anymore and something different would be happening. It's kind of interesting to begin to think about that. And and he says that, that because we're so interconnected and because... Um, Everything is, you know, you are only here because of the causes and conditions of your life, your parents, your family, your teachers, everything that's happened to you up until this very moment. And and there's this way in which it all weaves in together. Um, then any anything that um, we do affects everyone else. There's no way that you get to be in utter and complete isolation. It just can't be. And we arise in that interconnected way um, completely dependent on everything else. And, and in fact, contemporary physics tells us that this is true as well, that you know, if we, as we sit in this room, we look separate. You, know, you can say there's Richard and there's Bob and there's Mary Grace and there's the lamp and there's the papers... But we know that, in fact, the particles and molecules are all mixed up and moving around together. And if you had, you know, if you had a, um, the, the eyes that could see particles and protons and neutrons, you wouldn't see separate things. You'd see this dance of things that's happening all mixed up together. And the only way to derive any benefit from this, this teaching says, is to treat everyone else pretty much as you would like to be treated because guess what? They are you, you know? In a very deep and very real way. So that golden rule that we all learned when we were kids, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? It fits. It's a very Buddhist teaching because do unto them as you would have them do unto you because guess what? They are you. So it becomes really obvious why you would behave this way and why you would want to treat other beings as precious jewels because that's how you get to be a precious jewel as well. So then in the second verse... So I did get a couple of notes about this one. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. So here's a tough one. 
you know it reminds me of that teaching that I love to tell tell that also comes from the Tibetan teach Tibetan world in which you remember and consider that every being is enlightened but one and you know who that is <laughs> and they are doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up so you know where that puts you it's right at the or me it puts right at the bottom of the totem pole not a place that most of us like to be and you know this really points toward the kind of a restraint in our action you know if if that's really true if everybody is enlightened but me then how i respond or react in a given situation um maybe requires a certain kind of cautiousness and attention you know um and it's completely counter to what we like in our culture. We love to be right. I know I love to be right. Any of you know me well know that I love to be right. And we like to know what is good for everyone else. And most of us like to be in control. And in fact, as I wrote this, I thought, do I really know anyone who isn't a control freak? You know? And maybe I know a few people who are less so but you know we all like control and we all want control of our lives and in this country in america you know we are raised to think that our way is the best way i was anyway and i think maybe younger people don't have that quite so much but you know that the this is our culture really has something that nobody else has you know what's going on in the world right now because of that thought right and I was really amused when Deborah and I were talking before the retreat, and she was telling me of some of her experiences in New Zealand, including attending a Vipassana retreat with an American teacher, and somebody saying, oh no, not another American who's come to tell us what to do. <laughs> and it's sobering to think about those kinds of things. And what happens when we reverse that? And we go into a situation with the notion that why we are there is to serve, you know. And why we are there is to somehow find that place of freedom in the moment that we've talked about here that is the place of freedom for everyone involved. Not just for me, and not just for the other, but for everyone. And it reminded me, again as I thought of it, of the image from... Aikido that I really like where in Aikido as the opposing force comes towards you the notion is that you open and you get spacious and you move in such a way that everyone is safe not just them and not just you but everyone is safe and it's really interesting to think you know supposing six years ago someone, some brilliant someone who doesn't exist, had said, I wonder how we could take what's happened in the world and make the whole world safe for everyone. I mean, what a different thing it might have been, you know, rather than the kind of polarization that's happened and the assumption that we knew what was good for everyone else and that puts us on top. 
So this leads us directly into the question of delusion, actually. And so in the third verse, it says, Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. <laughs> so, you know, this, this is exactly where our practice is really important. Where are we not seeing clearly? Where am I not seeing clearly? Thinking that we're on top is a delusion. And daily practice, I think, is really, really helpful here. Because when we sit every day, there's that place where we stop every day. And, you know, some are really fast-paced, busy lives, this and that. There's a way in which it keeps us from being very reflective, and we don't really look at what's going on in the mind, in the heart, or in our lives. And when we stop, when you really stop, and bring the attention back just to the breath, to the body, just being present, sometimes, more often than not, I think, um, then this other stuff has a chance to come in, and sometimes we go, oh, maybe I'm not seeing quite so clearly. You maybe don't know what clear is, you just know that you aren't as clear as you thought. And we can get so completely caught in our stories about a particular situation, and I'm sure some of you saw that here at the retreat. It's one of the best things about retreats. You you may be embarrassed by it when it happens, but it's really so instructive. You know, so some of you may have had a Vipassana romance while you were here, you know, where you fall in love with that fabulous pair of sandals that somebody has. And you know that this is the person for you, right? Or maybe you had a Vipassana vendetta. And that's just as difficult. And that's the person who breathes funny or does something in line. Or maybe it's your roomie who, God forbid, you know, did whatever, and turned the light on or something. <laughs> and, and so you develop this huge hatred for this person and a whole story usually that goes with it about who it is that they are. And we've all done this. Every one of us has done this. If you haven't done it at a Vipassana retreat, you've done it in your life, you know? And we've all had, for example, the person... You know, somebody, you see someone at a meeting or something and you go, oh, ugh. And you just don't like them. But for some reason, as time goes on, you get to know them and all of a sudden you go, oh, they're really much nicer than I thought they were. They're really quite interesting. And and then, you know, you, you see the the huge story that you had. Or some of you either have had or certainly you've heard stories about, you know, various spiritual teachers whom their students loved and who got, the students got a great deal from their teachings and really thought that this person was some kind of saint. That's one of the real dangers of being a teacher. And then you find out that your teacher maybe has been misusing their power in some serious way or sleeping with their students or doing whatever it is that they're doing, and all of a sudden you go, oh, it's not a saint. 
you know sometimes it's way worse way way worse and and so we get caught in those kinds of stories or I was talking with someone today about how I 10 years ago I fell in love you know I fell in love with another man you know married to Russell and but I thought I needed someone who was practicing exactly the way I did and I fell in love and I created this whole delusion about how I had to have someone who practiced and this was the right person and I probably had to get out of my marriage and and it created an enormous amount of suffering and um, you know and, and it, it caused a lot of harm and it, the only thing one of the things that kept me from causing more harm was a lama from this particular tradition and I went to him to, and told him the story I wanted advice and I thought he would tell me what I wanted to hear talk about <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and he said "You speaking of Russell he said, you must not harm this man. Mm. And I was just not happy. <laughs> because, of course, at that point, I didn't think I was harming him. I thought I was doing the right thing. But, you know, but again, I guess one of the blessings of the practice and being on the path is when something like that comes your way, after a while you kind of go, oh, well, <clears throat> maybe he's right. And as you all know, I didn't leave. And um, and actually the most frightening thing, as I look back on that story now, is how utterly deluded I was. How much I thought I was right. And I thought I was so right that many people, I don't think any in this room, but it's possible, <laughs> said to me, you're so clear, you must be right. Is that scary or what? I mean, it was very, very scary. to, to And it is scary, and it makes me very, very cautious, actually, now, about my own mind and my own stories. And really, hopefully, when we have these stories, somebody comes along who wakes us up. You know, somebody or something. So we watch for that delusion. You know, being really, really careful about the stories we carry around in our mind. So then he says, whenever I see beings who are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I had found a precious treasure. So what I wrote down was, shouldn't they just be eliminated? <laughs> I mean, that's the usual response, isn't it? You know, when we have people who are doing really difficult and dreadful things. And I was thinking about Richard and his practice around our president. And, you know, a couple of Tuesdays ago, we, I asked for requests for Meta, And one of the men who started to come regularly on Tuesday said... I think I need to send Metta to Dick Cheney. <laughs> and, you know, when, when we, we encounter people like that, the notion is just to push them away and to make them be others and to want other and to want to get rid of them. And, um, and you know, I think it's really important to remember that um, when somebody is doing something really harmful... This doesn't mean that we don't counter their actions or try to prevent them from injuring others. But it's very important that we keep our hearts open to them. And this is 
really, really difficult practices practice because it's just so much easier to make an us and them situation out of this. And, um, and if we do that, if we polarize and create them and us, and of course us is always the one that's right, then we've just created another war and another harmful situation. And it's really important to find a way to relate to people who are doing very difficult things so that there can be some healing and transformation for everyone. I'm just trying to decide whether I want to tell you a story or not. Some of you have been privy to the ongoing saga of the difficult neighbor and the dogs. And um, the difficult neighbor moved out a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And um, But a few days after they moved out, I heard my dogs barking out on my road. And so I went out to see what was going on because we don't allow them to carry on. <coughs> and um, as I came up the stairs into the upper level of the house, which is the street level, I, they stopped. And so I kind of slowed down and didn't hurry. And, and then um, one barked again, and I stuck my head out the door, and I saw that there was some man out on the road. And um, So I said, as I always do, they're harmless, they don't bite, you know, they just bark and I was coming to get them and he just let go on me you know your vicious dogs have surrounded me and he went on about how terrible they were and how awful they were and how dreadful I was and I for some reason I don't even know why didn't say anything after I think the only thing I said after that was that the younger dog had a ball in her mouth while she was barking which doesn't make her look very vicious and um, <laughs> And I, I went inside, and I was so un- surprised. I thought, oh, my God, I didn't create a war. I didn't push back at him. I didn't say anything. He just got to do his thing. And I actually had a phone in my hand. I had somebody on the other end of the line, and the guy said, he was awful. <laughs> I was so impressed. I, I, just, I think I have to tell you, because I just want you to know that I did really, really well. <laughs> Once. <laughs> Once. But, you know, those things are important to find a way to hold them so that that no one, at the very least, no one gets hurt. At the very least, no one gets hurt. So then, he goes on to say, When out of envy others mistreat me with abuse, insults, or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. So this continues, of course, to be very (laughs) un-American. Because we don't lose well. You know, and we haven't been trained to lose. We've been trained to win, most of us. And we certainly don't like to lose if we're feeling mistreated or misunderstood or abused if there's something that's going on that feels like we really have the right to push back and the right to fight for what we want. And the Dalai Lama in his commentary suggests that, you know, that, that 
this doesn't mean always putting yourself at the bottom of the heap or accepting some kind of lesser way of living, but really beginning to find, you know, the times when it's 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 maybe a smaller kind of loss and where it's really okay to just let go, you know. We don't have to win everything. We don't have to win everything. And so and that those those practices of letting go a little bit um, are actually part of training the mind. All of this is about training the mind. It's all a training that you do. It's all, you know, an, an experiment, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. And he says, you know, if it's if it's necessary, you can respond in a way that's strong, but um, you know that then then it should be done carefully and it should only be done in a way that then continues to benefit all beings it's not done in a way that's defensive or that makes you right and on top and the other person you know at the bottom and i think that's so important that that i certainly know i when i get into that kind of defensive place and i'm reactive you know that's that's not about considering the benefit you know a benefit for all the beings necessary or all the beings present it's it's about um, my winning that particular situation and I don't think I'm the only person in the room who does that I think it's probably true of all of us so you know it can be really skillful at your next meeting you know, to give up your own agenda once in a while. And even when people have said unkind things about you, and I was talking again with somebody this afternoon, and we were reflecting on how sometimes political meetings and political situations can get that way. And a lot of nasty things get said, and sometimes you lose, you know. And and how is it that we can work with that as part of our practice? And so then in the sixth verse... I think I want to say, you know, I feel like I'm just skimming over the surface of a lot of these verses. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot here. We probably could have had a talk on each verse for eight nights of retreat, and that would have kept us quite busy. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Mm-hmm. When someone whom I have benefited and whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought immediately about parents. And how often it is that children, in one way or another, hurt us, and they don't always cause direct harm, but sometimes, you know, certainly sometimes financial harm, and certainly great difficulty. And um, so I wanted to read a relatively new Mary Oliver poem, which is a poem that came to her in a dream. And she says... Someone I want, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Mm-hmm. It's called the uses of sorrow. Mm-hmm. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. So, you know, children start young. There's the I hate you, mommy um, thing that happens when they're very young, but then, you know, as time goes on, sometimes there's actual harm, and sometimes there's other people that we've helped or loved or been kind to, partners sometimes this happens with, and then um, they turn, 
and um, they they really um, hurt you. And these people are your gurus. They're your teachers in the Tibetan world. <coughs> and You know, the understanding, certainly, of the Dalai Lama is that all such people, not, e- not only the ones that you've loved and who have hurt you, but all beings who have hurt you are your teachers. And he's forever talking about the Chinese as my friends, the enemy. And there are countless stories of various Tibetan monks and nuns who have been imprisoned by the Chinese and whose greatest fear is that they will lose their compassion for their jailers. Isn't that interesting? It's really wonderful. That it's, their fear isn't for their own lives or that this or that will happen to them, but the fear is that they will lose their caring for their jailers. And sometimes, you know, when there's someone who's perpetrating a lot of harm, it's really important to stop them. But you know, the teaching is you're not stopping them just to protect yourself. So again, there's a Jataka tale that um, I'm particularly fond of that talks about this when the Buddha came back and as the Buddha the Buddha to be came and he was a bodhisattva and he was on a ship with a wicked sea captain and the wicked sea captain was um, going to murder all of the passengers and the bodhisattva had some psychic abilities so he knew this in order to get their money and so the bodhisattva killed the sea captain I've actually heard the Dalai Lama teach this story and so this is great. It saves all the people who are going to be killed. That's good. But the two more important things are he did it in order to keep the sea captain from incurring the karma of killing all those people. And he did it knowing that he was taking on the karma of killing the sea captain, which was going to send him through some hell realm or other for a period of time. And all of that he was willing to do in order for the benefit um, to occur, you know, to be for the sea captain and for the people. So you know, I don't think the Democrats have thought of this yet. <laughs> imagine <laughs> preventing the war in Iraq or stopping it in order to save some other people, from the karma of their actions. That's a very interesting thought, you know. We don't think of it that way. We, we think of it because we don't like it, we're concerned for the Iraqis, all of which is totally fine. But we forget that there's also incredible karma that's happening with the perpetration of this really dreadful situation. So then in the 7th and 8th verses, which I'm going to read together, he really begins to talk about practice. He says, In short, both directly and indirectly do I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering. Undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, may I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. So he's talking here about this, a practice of taking in, being willing 
to take on all of the difficult and harmful states of another person. All of these mothers, the understanding in the Tibetan world where mothers are apparently always a very good thing, is that every being you encounter has been your mother in one lifetime or another. So look around the room, mom, because you've all been my mother, and I've been your mother, and Richard's mother, and Bob has been my mother. It's really, it's kind of an interesting thing. So if mothers don't do it for you, you could think benefactors or whatever. But that's that's the notion, is that every being has been kind to you. And so you're really willing to kind of take on their difficult stuff, and then you exchange it for kindness and compassion and happiness. And you can do this as a practice with the breath, and we've done that together, some of us, sometimes. And it's also not getting caught by the eight worldly dharmas, so pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, all of these these opposites that are continually tugging at us. So again, this afternoon, in um, walking the path and talking with someone, um, this person read that particular sign and said, Meta on steroids. <laughs> so here's here's another meta quote. It's a quote about a, a wonderful Indian teacher whose name was Deepama, who had just died. And the writer said, What is your heart like? That is what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died, Deepama. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me. Even me. (laughs) How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So, you know, We've heard all these verses now. We reflected for just a moment on these practices. How, how do we do this? At this point, you know, you could be overwhelmed. How, how do we transform our minds? How do we transform our thoughts? And I think this is where the hours on the cushion and in retreat and in reflection really come into play. There's a wonderful koan that I've sat with for a couple of years now in which uh, an emperor of China, the Emperor Wu, encounters the great Zen sage Bodhidharma. He doesn't know who Bodhidharma is. He just knows that he's this wild, blue-eyed, red-haired, big barbarian, and he's a little teeny Chinese emperor. And he says to him, he says, Who are you? And Bodhidharma says, effectively, I haven't a clue. (laughs) I don't know. And it's a wonderful koan. I totally recommend it to you. Because when we don't know who or what it is that we are, it really begins to chip away at our very confined, small notion of being where we see we get completely identified with our separate selves, 
where we're completely identified with our stories and where we get have some tendency to get completely unconnected to the rest of the world. And the Dalai Lama, again in his commentary, really encourages us to remember the utterly interdependent nature of reality, that, that when we really begin to <coughs> even reflect on how interconnected we are, then um, that begins to change how we are in the world. So my friend Dane Servine wrote this poem called The Jeweled Net of Indra. And he says, Driving down the freeway, remembering Hindu mythology, Indra's net, each intersecting weave holding a jewel, reflecting every other facet of every other jewel infinitely. Suddenly I see the hands that paint the white lines that lay the black asphalt, a man joyous or lost, soap scrubbing his body clean for dinner and beer, for the wife who loves him, hands that hold their tickets for London to see the grandmother, the hard-drinking pub matron whose body bore children in building rubble when the Nazi bombing relented. Mm -hmm. And if not for that war, would I be driving now, hands on the wheel, listening to the radio recount the birth of a child named Tsunami, after the storm that drove her mother into the hills. With the meager dollars I send to rebuild a village, minted with the Rosicrucian eye above the pyramid dreamed by this country's founders as the all-seeing vision of a world where not a sparrow falls that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. Would I have known to send it if not for the hands that flew the kite that drew electricity from the skies that made its way into the flat-screened box that unveils this jewel-linked world 24 hours of every gleaming day, weaving news with advertisements for clothes made by hands in China, nimbly sewing a dream of Hollywood and iPod, and offering their bodies one by one for a better future. While the coal that fumes the electricity that plunges the needle drifts in air that encircles a globe that warms the ice caps, that melts into sea, that shifts the current, that loves the wind, that swirls from heaven to earth, stirring one storm after another, blowing its diaphanous passion over New Orleans like a trumpet, sinking the heart so low with blue notes that flood, is a dark cure for what burns, this illusion that anyone stands alone, stranded on the roofs of our swollen houses, mouthing, save me, Mm. to a world whose millions of hands can turn up the volume loud enough to finally hear Mm. or flick with a single click the entire interconnected vision of it all Mm. off. So we are all bodhisattvas in training, whether or not you have taken that vow. And it's not a small idea. It's not a small idea. And we can turn our attention to our interconnectedness on or off. 
And what happens here makes us bigger. That wonderful line from one of the poems in Bob's talk last night, each condition that I welcome transforms me. Each condition that you welcome transforms you. Each condition that you welcome makes you bigger. Little bit by little bit. You might remember the story that I told at the beginning of the retreat about how Jack Kornfield likes to do this guided imagery at the end where a Buddha takes your place in your life. You know, you could play with this a little bit if you'd like. And, and the Buddha knows what to do. Isn't that interesting? Knows what to do in your life. That you have that ability to be a bodhisattva. It's inherent in our being. And so, you know, holding others most dear, you know, we're not perfect, but we're working on it, every one of us. Or being the lowest, the one who serves. You know, maybe all you do is offer someone a cup of tea, you know, or wash their dishes, or something of that sort. And you go, oh, look, that it really feels good to serve. It's not so bad being down at the bottom. Sometimes it's actually kind of fun. It's easier in a way than being in charge. Or we really give our attention to where the mind is where the mind is and, and watch delusion, you know, see see where it is that we get caught in a story and see just the nature of our stories. One friend of mine got caught in a Vipassana romance at a retreat one year and she's a pretty experienced practitioner. And so she thought, you know, I'm just, she knew it was kind of a mind state, so she thought, I'm just going to see what happens. So she made up a completely other story about what a heel this guy was. And she started, every time she'd see him, she'd tell her story about how awful he was and how he did these dreadful things. And pretty soon, her Vipassana romance dissolved. She wasn't interested in him anymore because she'd been hearing this other tape, which she knew was false. But it was very interesting to her to begin to see how fragile those stories are. You know, how (coughs) completely deluded. You can do that. Every one of you could do that. Or how we can begin to really work with that notion of keeping a difficult person in our heart and not polarizing, not making it an us and them. And like I say often when I do metta instructions, maybe you don't try it with the most difficult person in your life. Maybe you just try it with someone who's mildly difficult and figure out, oh, look, it works, you know, and extending metta and compassion. And and we experiment with accepting a loss, you know. I don't like it. But you begin to see, oh, there's a little less to fear. Maybe I can live with this. And then we discover, oh, we can relax a little more. Or you're the person that you loved who's kind of turned on you or hurt you or blown it, you know. And I was thinking as I was writing of this years ago when my youngest daughter was in treatment for alcohol and drug addiction. And, you know, what a very, very difficult thing that was and how angry I was at her and angry at myself too for not seeing it but you know there was a huge shift that came in our lives because of that you know her entrance into the recovery world made a, brought about a great transformation in my own life she really was my teacher in her 
Very, very difficult place. We don't get to be bodhisattvas all at once. Think of how many lifetimes. Do you, either of you know what the number is supposed to be? I actually don't know. What number? It gets to in the high, it's a, oh. high thousands? Yeah, it's a lot. A lot. <laughs> many, many, many. I could make up a number, you know. 1,378,431 lives before you get to be a Buddha, from the time you make the vow until... You know, it takes a long, long, long time. So here's one of my favorite... Uh, a, a, sort of a contemporary koan from my friend Robert Aiken Roshi who writes about Raven and Mrs. Bear. And Raven, Raven, our Raven. So the Raven is the teacher. That's kind of wonderful. I didn't think about that when I chose this for tonight, that we've had Ravens. And Mrs. Bear comes to a meeting, and she's really, really tired and frazzled. And she's just, she says, I'm so tired and frazzled after dealing with my cubs. What if I don't feel compassionate? And Raven says, fake it. (laughs) and Mrs. Bear says that doesn't seem honest and Raven says it doesn't begin with honesty or as they say in the program fake it till you make it (laughs) you know so really what this is pointing at is some of this is about directing the mind in a particular direction before you're there (laughs) in a sense it's not honest but the intention is there you know you intend to have compassion, you intend to have kindness, you intend to open up your heart. And and so you keep experimenting with this much bigger view. And there's a wonderful saying that the our, I intend to have a view as wide as the sky and actions as fine as barley flour. So what that means is you keep working at a big, big, big view, and then you keep working at being absolutely meticulously skillful with your actions, so that you're really not doing anything that's harming. And when we do that, <coughs> gradually, gradually, we begin to discover that we are much, much bigger than we ever supposed. So I think I'll just end with the Shantideva Again, I don't know why I think I need the notes, probably because I'm scared I'll forget it midway. With a wish to free all beings, I shall always go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, until I reach awakening. Filled with wisdom and compassion, today in Buddha's presence, I generate the mind of awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. For as long as space endures, and as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. So let's just sit, just as you are. Don't change your posture and breathe for a moment.
So thank you very much for listening to the Dharma. Let's have the bell for the sitting at 9 o'clock, and then we'll begin as soon after that as we can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.